this is Base Layer, brought to you by Arca. I'm your host, David Nage. This is Base Layer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. Welcome back to Base Layer. This is David, and this is your new episode with Bill Wagner from Bearing Asset Management. I had a great conversation with Bill down in Dallas during the Digital Asset Strategy Summit about a week ago. Bill and I were talking about Bitcoin and we were talking about digital assets and we were talking about a lot of the things that he has seen over the last few years, especially the last two decades, being highly active in the traditional markets, seeing systemic risk in 07, 08, 09, and seeing the reason and the rationale behind Bitcoin that a lot of us would talk about every single day. He was living through it in, in real time and he was investing through it in real time. And so we talked a lot about Bitcoin. We talked a lot about it being store of value. The Austrian school and some of those factors that a lot of Bitcoiners talk about. So this is a great conversation about Bitcoin, about digital assets, about systemic risk, about the traditional markets from a investor who is really spending a lot of time on this space. So remember, nothing on base layer is investment advice. So please do your own research. And on the flip side, you're going to hear a great conversation with Bill Wagner from Bearing Asset Management. Enjoy. So this is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. I have a friend, Bill, uh, with us today. Bill is an investor and a jack of all trades. I've gotten to know him over the last few years. Uh, he's getting to be quite, quite intelligent in the space in digital assets and blockchains. So, Bill, thank you for joining us. And uh, what we like to do on the show is let people kind of give a little uh, bit of a background on themselves, brought them into this world of crypto wackiness, as I like to say. Um, and so give us a little bit of background about yourself, what you did before and what you're doing now. And then at that point, I don't necessarily like to go about the when Bitcoin moment, but what about the underlying technology really inspired you to spend more time to look at it as an investment and to look at it as someone with the eyes that you have and the experience that you have? David, thanks for having me um, and welcome to Texas. Thank you. Um, I have spent the bulk of my career in the investment management industry. Um, in the 90s, I was with uh, Fidelity Investments. I was a technology investor and then uh, saw the first bubble, the technology bubble. And when that bubble burst, started a company called uh, Bearing Asset Management 2002, which was a long, short macro fund. And at the time, we were basically buying technology companies for what a lot of these companies had cash on their balance sheet. So it was a wonderful time to be a buyer of technology. And we approached investing with an Austrian economics lens. And uh, for the, your listeners out there, it's, uh, well, it's a type of economics that's not taught in most uh, economic uh, uh, programs in the United States for sure. But the idea that central banking, uh, well, fiscal and monetary policies essentially uh, create unintended and intended consequences and distort things, and those distortions can lead to further distortions. And so when we watched the central bank try and rescue the financial system in 01 and 02, lowering interest rates, et cetera, you essentially segue from a tech bubble to a private sector credit bubble. And so at Bering, we were one of the few groups that uh, wrote about and chronicled the essential uh, early stages of building a private sector credit bubble. 
And in 2004, we were designing a strategy to start shorting uh, various aspects of the private sector credit bubble. We created the Bering Credit Bubble Index in 2004. A lot of our work was published by uh, Dr. Mark Faber. And uh, we started speaking around the country and writing about how we thought this was going to be um, uh, worse than the tech bubble. And it really went to such an extreme in 2005, 2007, we really never thought it would get to that extreme. And then, of course, things started to break, home prices started to go down, etc. The great financial crisis in 2009 was kind of the, it was the aha moment. we, We were very short. We made quite a bit of money when uh, the bubble burst and then we watched central banks essentially change the the rules the playbook and when they changed the playbook they uh central bank was typically a lender of last resort and this point with a penalty rate in this case they just lent money to most types of credit that's right and essentially socialized credit and i think I uh, looked at some friends one night at dinner and said, the unintended consequences from this socially are going to be extreme. We may not see it for many, many years, but it will, it will be there. And um, we were gold investors in 2002. I'm not a gold bug, but basically gold was just an insurance against um, uh, you know, unforeseen consequences of creating too much, much money. And after 09, of course, the central banks created QE1, QE2. I think it was uh, 2010, we, we actually at the University Club in New York, we had a conference, we had all of these Austrians and other investment people in the room, about 300 people, and a friend of mine, Trace Mayer, uh, said, let's go to lunch, and we went to lunch, and we must have had 15 or 20 people there at lunch and said, you really need to take a look at this thing called Bitcoin. And at the time, we were just patting each other on the back, and we were proud of this wonderful call that we made in the credit markets. And I said, Trace, can we talk about this, you know, later? I'm kind of, I get different people. We're entertaining from all over the world. And I didn't take Trace seriously till 2012. And it was a combination of QE1, QE2, and listening to Trace and this idea of creating a, a world of decentralization mm-hmm. and what that actually meant. We're both Austrians. And... Um, so I invested in Bitcoin, and more importantly, I started to think about a world that could be basically a parallel universe. Right, and that's when that's when my fascination with Bitcoin began. So we're in an interesting time and place to have that specific conversation because what do we what have we seen over the last few weeks alone? We saw the repo markets getting flooded with capital because something was happening. We saw, obviously, yield inversions here in the country. Again, something's happening. We've seen the evolution of the China and U.S. trade war having effect trickling down into farmers having to be subsidized, for instance. We are seeing things like $3 trillion of corporate debt that is laying out there, potentially about to be downgraded. So pensioners and endowment CIOs can't really hold that because it violates their mandate. We're seeing things in Europe. Boris Johnson is on the hooks for Brexit. Mm-hmm. Not, not looking too good. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing Germany, technically, if you ask you know, Raoul Powell and others, in a recession. For you, is Bitcoin really the kind of the global macro hedge of you know kind of the last resort? Is it really, you know, as Chalmuth you know, said, kind of schmuck insurance? Yeah, I love that schmuck insurance, by the way. That's that's great. 
Um, well, let's let's go back to an incident we had just in owning gold because I know gold bugs are are attacked and people that own too much gold are, are ridiculed in, in at cocktail parties, etc. People buy gold as it's just insurance. It, it may be sh- another form of schmuck insurance, especially when there's a financial crisis like we had in '09. Um, I well, first of all, we're living in a time that. We've never witnessed this before. We've never seen a world. If I twenty years ago we were in Switzerland, I said we'd have negative interest rates in the Swiss franc, and the Swiss franc would not be backed by gold. You would have put me in a rubber room that night. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, it's an experiment. It's an experiment for the ages, and Bitcoin has become um, a schmuck insurance form of schmuck insurance, along with gold. But the thing that really intrigued me about Bitcoin is is it's censorship resistant Mm. and you essentially don't have custodian risk. And so we actually had to move physical gold in 2012. We owned gold at the oldest private bank in Switzerland. And, you know, in the middle of the night, I get a phone call that, you know, this particular bank was no longer allowed to do business with U.S. entities. We were running a U.S. uh, partnership. So we had to find a new custodian, had to re-assay the gold. And then had to hope and pray that we didn't know what was going on in Switzerland at the time, that Switzerland wouldn't impose some kind of a, a tax, which in the 1970s, by the way, they ran negative interest rates. And if you were a foreign investor uh, at one time that owned Swiss franc, you had a 40% tax. People don't understand that governments at the end of the day can change rules. That was the attraction to Bitcoin and is the, co- the continual attraction to Bitcoin for me and many others is its, it's form of insurance. It's not perfect. But it's a form of insurance that people are gravitating to, not because they want to, it's almost because they have to. Hmm. And I think that um, we were just talking about this earlier today, you know, will layer two get built on top of Bitcoin, Lightning, et cetera? And will we have this kind of instant form of value moving about the world um, in a very uh, instant, low cost and censorship resistant way? It's very possible. Or we can have other you know, cryptographies, uh, cryptography type platforms emerge and compete with Bitcoin. So. so you talked about kind of custodial risk. You gave the example of gold. And what we've seen is the the narrative of the institutions are coming from the lights of Noah Gratz and others. And the institutions have come in many ways. Fidelity is built out. Gemini is built out. BitGo is built out. Um, and those are qualified custodial products. And people have lauded them. And, you know, we we think that they're great because they provide institutions with a place where they can actually custody their Bitcoin or what other digital assets they may be doing. I'm curious, do you think that there are inherent risks there? Do you think that it's actually anti-theoretical to what Bitcoin digital assets are about? Great question. Um so full disclosure, I'm an early investor in a company called Uphold, which is one of the first digital wallet companies in the United States. And it was really one of the first ways in the U.S. where you could go from, just like Coinbase, you could go from dollars to Bitcoin to Ethereum back to dollars or to euros, a number of other currencies, like 30 other currencies. And uh, I was also the first board member of the company. So the early meetings uh, with investors was all about Things like custody, things like adhering to U.S. regulations and European regulations, which is where most of the customers were. 
and the idea that do people want to be their own bank, which was all the rage early on in the space. And now people are saying, I'm not sure I want to be my own bank, which you have this thing like Fidelity or Backed and others saying, well, we'll, you know, we'll provide some of those services. But now you're adding uh, a layer of friction to the equation. You're getting in one way you can sleep at night because maybe the wallet or account is insured or maybe they're providing some other services that you're not getting just by holding your Bitcoin in cold storage. Um, and look, we were running our fund years ago. We actually had money at MF Global, so I know all about counterparty risk. Yeah, fortunately, that, that worked out well. But um, I would say that everyone is different. And some people, due to a mandate or a jurisdictional risk or requirement, they're going to have to have a custodian. And I agree with you that it does fly in the face a little bit of what Bitcoin was built on, which is this kind of you know, peer-to-peer value and, and no middlemen. Um, but I do think there will be a large swath of the population that will prefer to use certain groups, call them intermediaries, if they're adding enough services or value to that to that ownership of that asset. So aside from Bitcoin, what else in the kind of the proverbial ecosystem is getting you interested? Um, yeah, so I've been involved in several projects. Uh, there's a venture studio that I'm involved with in New Zealand that's backed about 20, built in and uh, backed about 21 decentralized applications. Um, they, uh, well, number one, they've built a network that's actually live. They've actually got applications now that are going live. Um, very interesting group of applications. Um, and they're not building on Ethereum, which I find interesting because I think there's, there's a lot of limitations with Ethereum, which we, we don't have enough time to get into now. Um, I am looking at several other different pieces of infrastructure around the space. I, the, the idea of lending against crypto is interesting to me. Um, I do think that you'll have uh, a decentralized prime broker of sorts. You know, there's there's uh, different groups trying to put their flag in the ground around that idea. I, I still think, you know, there's a lot of money going into fintech, which is interesting. I think actually fintech's becoming a bubble. These companies are spending $200, $300 to get a customer, but the revenue to generate from that customer is very, very little. Um, well, again, this is what happens when you have cheap money. I just think infrastructure is where you want to be looking. I think the space is still pouring the foundation. We'll, eventually, we're going to build a skyscraper. Uh, we got to pour the foundation first. And we're, you know, because of regulatory issues, I think is why the, the foundation has taken so long to pour. I think the last question I have is that you have been the, you've really kind of, you had a front row view of systemic risk. He saw the ugly face and he saw the result of systemic risk. Some of the things that are happening within the world of DeFi, open, open finance, with, you mentioned, using Ethereum to collateralize and create stable coins like DAI, creating some of these asset-backed loans out there with some of the companies out there. Are you concerned about that? Another great question. Yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced that, I, I think DeFi has a place. I'm not convinced that using Ethereum as collateral is the way to, to start this process. Although I think decentralized finance ultimately will play out. That's another area that interests me. I just think, again, back to collateral, 
lending against collateral. It's one thing to have collateral and borrow a little bit against collateral. But when you're seeing people borrowing quite a bit against collateral, it has you know it has on it. You can have uh, collateral damage. Is an article I wrote in 2007. You can find it on the internet. Um, yeah, I, I think decentralized finance will become a competitive threat to traditional lending. But the types of collateral, and that gets back to, you know, are we going to tokenize other types of real-world assets? Probably. Uh, what are the benefits of tokenized real-world assets? We, you know, we talked about that for days. But the idea that the, the Bitcoin, the birth of Bitcoin is essentially creating competition for money. And you and I have grown up in a world where the dollar's been the, the reserve standard, and, and we, for the most part, never questioned it. And, and today, you know, we were just having lunch earlier, and Chile is, is collapsing. Yep. Um, so the Chilean peso, I have no idea what it's doing. I haven't looked at the market today, but the Chilean peso is probably going to open up down quite a bit. And the Chilean population that holds money there is, is going to be subject to basically wealth destruction. And um, so, yeah, I, my, my, my thinking here is that permanent capital is what the industry needs. Decentralized finance is kind of an extension of, of this or part of this permanent capital. Uh, but again, early innings, it's fascinating. And uh, I, I just think that, you know, I, I just don't want to get over my skis, basically. So for any founders or any fellow investors that want to find you and possibly collaborate with you and talk to you, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Bill underscore Lagner. There you go. So this is my friend Bill Lagner from Bearing Asset Management. We're having a great time in Dallas at the Digital Asset Strategy Summit. And uh, you can find Bill on Twitter and definitely reach out to him. He's got a lot of experience and uh, someone who's worth knowing. Thank you, Bill. Thank you very much, David. For more notes from this past episode about our guest, please go to www.ar.ca slash baselayer. Nothing stated on this podcast should be taken as investment advice, which would require a thorough assessment of each investor's personal financial profile and risk tolerance. Statements regarding past performance are not necessarily indicative of future returns. If you like what you're listening to on Baselayer, let us know. Subscribe, give us a like, or hit us up on Twitter, Arca at Arca, or myself, David Nage at DavidJN79. Let us know, and we'd love to obviously hear from you. For additional resources to help sophisticated listeners like yourself learn about the digital asset space and the financial terms you understand, please visit www.ar.ca for articles, market commentary, videos, and more.